Don't you love that music? I, I was a trumpet player, so I'm trying to figure out, is that a Harmon mute or a plunger mute? Right? Trumpet players out there. Well, thank you for coming and worshiping this morning. I was wondering if it was just going to be me talking to myself, which happens often. It's not uncommon, and uh, I would have been fine. But I am so glad. We are glad that you are here to worship with us this morning. Well, this past fall, I moved from a house off of, Durant, uh, off of Leesville Road to a home that's closer over this way. And whenever you move, you end up spending some time in the attic. Yeah. Nobody likes spending time in the attic, especially when it's still warm here in the fall. It's a great way to lose about 10 pounds because you're sweating beanballs up there. But um, anyway, as I was up there, I, I found a lot of things that were once the latest and greatest, but now they were outdated. Now, I didn't, I'm going to show you some pictures. I want to tell you, I didn't, I didn't spend one more minute in the attic than I had to. So these are pictures that represent what I saw. And I can assure you that Goodwill or the landfill could vouch for me that this stuff was in my attic. Put the first one up. Who remembers AOL? Yeah. Some people remember Prodigy. This was the internet. For folks that are younger, that was the internet. Put up the next thing. Encyclopedias. Warning, do not open that in the attic. You will spend the rest of the time sneezing because of all of the dust that's in there. Next one, maps that fold up and go in your glove compartment. Right? That was, that was real. Uh, next thing. All right, hold on. We, we just got rid of the analog, the tube TVs. That's not a big deal. But the VCR is not just any VCR. It skipped commercials. That was a big deal back then, you know, for people nodding. Yes, you had that. Last one. <laughs> I actually had one of those. People thought I was in the army. You know, like, one Bravo Charlie, we're going to clear down here. Um, but I found all of these things in the attic that were now outdated. And the time in my attic reminded me that things that no longer work, we just update. Things that need refreshing, we update them. Think of social media, how often we change our picture of ourselves or of others. And when something goes out of style, we update it. Some of us need to update and haven't, you know, like on clothing. But it's the kind of thing, when you think about it, you look at everything around us, there is very little that doesn't morph or change. And here's what it does. When we start to look at the Bible, we end up treating this thing like all the other things around us, and we think it's outdated. And we say, ah, well, the, the, it was completed in about 2,000 years ago. People have changed. Times have changed. We've evolved. So, you know, the stuff in here, there's a lot that doesn't really pertain. And so we think it's outdated, and we kind of push it aside. Well, that's a lie. It's a lie that we do need to spend some time today talking about as we continue in the series called Believable. And I'm going to ask that the ushers come down. They have Bibles, and as we do every week here at LifePoint, we want to get a Bible in your hand. If you do not have one, uh, please take this home with you. Consider it a gift from the church to you. If you just need one uh, today as we go along, do, you know, take it and put it in the back um, on your way out. 
But what we want to do in, in these few weeks, uh, I think it's five weeks, we're going to be looking at all the different lies that are out there. And we have to look at this because there's so many things that influence our decision. So many things that uh, influence our um, beliefs. And the, and the thing is, is we have to confront these because what we believe determines how we behave. These lies sound so believable. They sound like the truth. And so we start to believe them with all of our heart and we end up living our life as if they are true. And the one we're going to look at today is we live a, a life that believes the lie that the Bible is outdated. It isn't surprising that as an American society, we are engaging with this less. The Barner Group did a study on behalf of the American Bible Society. And what they did is they interviewed 42,000, over 42,000 people across 96 cities. And what they found was that people are engaging with the Bible less. They, they said this, uh, they ranked American support for the Holy Bible, reveals that 91 out of 96 U.S. cities are not Bible-minded. And here's how they define Bible-minded. Bible-minded as people who typically read the Bible each week and who strongly assert the Scripture is accurate in principles it teaches. 91 out of 96 cities, that's 95% of the cities are not Bible-minded. I was saddened to see my hometown area, Providence, Boston, was at the bottom of, of the findings. And, and in that report, as I was reading it, it said the more densely populated areas tend to be less Bible-minded. There's probably many factors that uh, get into that, but I think one of them is the simple fact that those people who believe this is outdated are getting around others and propagating that lie that this thing's just not relevant anymore. There's things in here that we just shouldn't even trust or rely on. Well, the, the sermon in the sentence last week was, was truth is not just a what, but a who. And we define that who as Jesus Christ. He said he was the way, the truth, and the life. Well, listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. Heaven and earth, they'll come and go. People will come on the scene and exit the scene, but God's word stands forever, is what he's saying. But sadly, we can't start there. I can't sit here and say, God's word is timeless because the Bible says so. Culture isn't taking, believing that anymore. You'd say, Rob, aren't you listening to the studies you just quoted? A good starting point is not to say that the Bible tells me so. 1952, a military, military historian, C. Sanders, uh, came up with three tests to tell whether an ancient manuscript uh, is, or a copy of can be uh, trusted. There are three tests, the internal test, the external test, and the bibliographic uh, test. The internal test says, what does the document say about itself? And because culture no longer 
wants to hear that. That's not a good starting point. And because we don't have a lot of time, I'm going to skip that part. But here's what I will tell you. You can go on the internet and find real scholarly uh, studies on this. As far as the internal test, the Bible passes with flying colors. It aces the internal test. But let's talk just a little bit about the second test, and that's the external test. What do outside sources say about the text in question? Not what, what does it say about itself, but what are others saying about this thing? And so you can see when you do this that the Bible squares up with history. There are outside sources that talk about things that we have in here. There's a historian called Josephus. He's a Jewish historian, worked for the Roman government in the first century. Not a believer. But yet when you read the historical writings, you will find him writing about this uh, wise man named Jesus and his disciples that were following him. There's archaeological evidence for dates and times and events that we find in the Bible. It corroborates by the archaeological evidence that we're finding. In the Old Testament, the Assyrian invasion, the Babylonian captivity, archaeological digs confirm that stuff is accurate. Even more so in the New Testament. At one point, it was thought that uh, Luke's gospel was fabricated. He uh, referred to some authorities with different names, some titles that were different. Scholars have looked at that and said, that is very, very accurate. They have found uh, in digs another crucifixion victim. And then the tools that were used for the crucifixion. And so it's just confirming that everything that was talked about in the New Testament with respect to crucifixion, whoa, it looks like it's accurate. As far as external evidence, one of the great archaeologists, Nelson Gluick, said this, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. How about that final test, the bibliographic test? That says how well are the copies transmitted to us? How do we know that things didn't get messed up, that there are errors? All of us have played the telephone game, right? That's where you go to the person over here, and you may say the dog has a purple tongue. Go three, four people as they whisper it down, and it gets out here that the cat has a purple bum. Simple. It doesn't, there's error transmission. So how do we know when we're talking hundreds of years that this thing reflects the original text? How do we know that? Well, we know it by looking at two things that we look at for all the other ancient documents that we trust. We look at the date and the distribution of the copies that we do have. And so I want to give you the sermon in a sentence, and then we're going to go look at those two factors with respect to the Bible. Sermon in a sentence this week is God's word can be trusted because it is timeless. Jesus said it, God said it through the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah said, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. That this thing, based off of copies of manuscripts of the ancient text, is very, very accurate 
far above any other ancient text that we hold as fact when we're taught that. I want to look at a couple of those ancient texts. I am not going to ask you if you read them. I do not want to embarrass anyone. I read the cliff notes of these, so I can't even say I read them all. Anyway, the first one, let's look at Julius Caesar and the Gaelic Wars. Everything we know about Caesar's exploits in the Gaelic Wars are derived from 10 manuscript copies. The original one was written in 50 BC. The earliest we have is 8900. That's a gap of 950 years. Not to mention that it was written by a guy hired by the Roman emperor to talk about the Roman emperor. How, do you, how, how accurate do you think that a document written by somebody hired by a politician to write about the politician is going to be? I can almost picture the scene, some low lighting, and the emperor going, write the document, I'll read it. I'll either scratch out all the words or I'll scratch you out, right? Yet, we don't have a copy from the first century, the second century, the third century. We have copies of copies of copies of copies all the way out to AD 900, a gap of 950 years. Yet, as a student, you wouldn't th- you, there's no way you would go into the class and tell the instructor, I'm going to blow off today's class. I'm going to be absent because, you know what? I don't really believe what you're talking about today because you only have 10 manuscript copies of a time gap of about 950 years. I'm I'm not going to attend today. (laughs) We don't do that. Look at another text, Plato's Tetralogies, um, written 427 to 347 BC. The early manuscript, the earliest we have, is AD 900. We have seven of them, and that's a gap of about 1,200 years. Look at one a little bit more reliable, Homer. First service thought Simpson. No. Everybody's like, oh, wait, video clip of the Simpsons? No. Homer, author of the ancient Greek poem, the Iliad. Here's um, for that. That's, that's more reliable. And the numbers have been updated because for a while we would report 643 manuscripts is what we had. There are some recent findings. And that has bumped up the number of copies that we do have to 1,569. It was written 800 BC, earliest manuscript about 300 BC. So there's a gap of about 500 years. All of these ancient texts that we're talking about, except for for Homer, there are just a few copies and a large gap between when they were originally written and what we have as the earliest copy. So how does the New Testament square up? Let's just look at the New Testament. All biblical scholars tend to agree that the New Testament was finished writing before the end of the first century. That's important. That means when it was done, there were people around that could go, "Uh uh-uh, it did not happen that way. The people that were penning the Bible knew that people would call them out on it if they were wrong. So the earliest copy we have is about AD 125. So that puts a gap, a time gap of about 50 years. How many copies do we have? Well, if you just take Greek, we have over 5,000 copies 
of the manuscripts that we use to get what we've got. If you add other languages, over 24,000 copies that we have. The manuscript evidence for the New Testament is overwhelming. And uh, De- uh, the manuscript expert Dan Wallace illustrates this by saying this. If you place the manuscript copies of the average ancient author, it would form a pile four feet high. However, the New Testament manuscripts and translations would reach a mile high. You may be thinking, okay, well, we get all these manuscript copies. How well do they jive with one another? Are there differences, right? Well, in the scholarly world, they call those differences variants. And there's a whole uh, textual criticism, a whole field of study that looks at this. And there are over 400,000 variants among the New Testament manuscripts. 400,000. And you might be going, that is not good news, Rob. Well, first of all, you would be wrong if you said a variant equals an error. And you would also be wrong if you said the large number of variants means that you cannot have confidence in what you have. The opposite is true. The New Testament has 99.5% agreement across the 5,000 Greek copies of the manuscript. 99.5. The abundance of variants is because we have a wealth of manuscripts to look to see what differences are. Do we have the exact representation? So it's a stronger evidence, not a weaker foundation for knowing that what we have really represents the original manuscript. Those variants fall in three buckets. The largest bucket being nonsense errors or misspellings. The next largest bucket would be minor variants like a synonym change. And then there is the very small bucket. And this bucket is 1% of the variants. 1% of 400,000. And in the end, scholars say that there is no cardinal doctrine, no essential truth affected by the variants. Plus, all of these variants are not tucked away so that nobody can see them. They're not kept secret. They're all out there. You can read, especially that third category, like if you have an ESV study Bible, they footnote. Here's what one manuscript said. Here's what the other one said. Now, we didn't talk about the Old Testament, but I can assure you, you can feel confident that we do have reliable manuscripts that we use to get what we've got. The Dead Sea Scrolls are one of those. Close access to the original. That God's word, that this represents the manuscripts with a very high degree of accuracy, like no other text from the ancient world. Now, you may say, yeah, but how about new discoveries? How about stuff like the Gospel of Judas? How am, how am I supposed to process that? How are we supposed to respond to stuff that they're finding now? Well, Donnie sat with Mark Goodacre um, on Friday, actually. And Mark is a professor of New Testament and Christian origins at Duke University. He attends here at LifePoint, attends the Durant campus. 
And he and Donnie sat down and talked about the new discoveries. I want you to be able to listen in to that dis discussion. Check out the screen. Mark, thank you for taking the time to sit down and talk with us. Uh, we're in this series where we're talking about lies that the world tells us that really sounds believable. And I wanted to sit down and talk to you because if you watch the History Channel or some other news shows, every so often there's a new discovery about specifically the New Testament that's supposed to like just rock the very foundations of Christianity that this new writing has been found out about Jesus or about Mary. And maybe he was married, maybe he wasn't. And I just wanted to ask you to just talk to us about some of those manuscripts, some of those findings uh, that have been reported as fact and how we can still maintain our trust in the biblical text that we have. Sure. Well, it's, it's amazing how often Jesus is married off to Mary Magdalene, for starters. I mean, it seems like every year he's married off to her again. I mean, lots of these texts, I think, get media attention because they satisfy people's appetite for something different. You know, the church was wrong all along. You know, things have been hidden in the Vatican vault or something like that. A lot of the time, when you look at the details... There's just nothing in them. Uh, I mean, I'll give you an example. There was a text called The Gospel of Jesus' Wife, which was produced with big, exciting fanfare a couple of years ago. It was on every media channel, a documentary about it and everything. And when a group of us started looking at this in detail, it's a tiny little piece, tiny little piece, supposedly all about Jesus having a wife. And when we looked at it in detail, what we found was it was a forgery. It was produced in the 21st century. In fact, it even had a typo on it from an internet site that lots of people were using. So quite often when you dig down into some of these claims, you find out that there's not a lot in them. So when we, uh, we're talking about, you know, the, the historical accuracy of the New Testament manuscripts, how can we feel like, okay, we can trust those. We feel like, uh, you know, we can feel like those are documents that we can read uh, with confidence that it's what God wants us to be understanding about him. Well, I suppose one real difference between the New Testament manuscripts and manuscripts of non-canonical texts is that there are simply thousands of New Testament manuscripts. So we're not looking at just a handful of tiny things. So if you take something like the Gospel of Thomas, which I've spent a lot of time studying, we've only got one complete manuscript of it. One! You know, compared to the New Testament, where we have thousands. So that we're not comparing like with like when we're doing an examination of the two things. But probably the key thing isn't just that there's a difference in terms of manuscript witness. The difference is that when you look at the New Testament text, the authors were living in the first century. That's the key thing. The authors of most of these non-canonical texts were not living in the first century. Explain to us what non-canonical texts. Non-canonical basically means the texts that didn't find their way into the New Testament. So we've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. I think all of those are securely dated in the first century. And our manuscript witness to them, in other words, the manuscripts that uh, feature Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all pretty early. When we look at those texts that didn't make it into the New Testament, those non-canonical texts, they're written by authors living later, quite often pretending to be people they clearly are not. There's a Gospel of Peter, for example, and it's claimed to be by Peter. There's just not a chance in this world that Peter actually wrote that text. This is someone pretending to be him. So there's a material difference between the Gospels that we find in the Bible and the Gospels that we find in 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries, which are written by people pretending to be the apostles. Do some of those writings, uh, do they have uh, doctrinal statements or facts or made-up facts that 
that would really change much when you do look at them? I mean, is it something we have to be afraid of? A huge number of the Gospels that you find outside of the New Testament are actually incredibly difficult to read. I mean, not just in terms of trying to translate them from, because they're usually written in Coptic, which is like this uh, Egyptian language. So you have, you have trouble translating them, but even once you've done that, they are impenetrable when you get to some of the details because they do this amazing cosmology and these reflections about things that aren't you know, anything like what we get in the New Testament. I mean, one of the reasons that people are interested in this stuff is because they've read Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code or they've seen the film. And so they've heard that there's things like the Gospel of Philip, which you know, tell us a different story from the story in the New Testament. But actually, when you look at the Gospel of Philip, most of it is impossible to understand. I mean, most of it is, is really impenetrable, difficult, bizarre stuff. It doesn't even tell a coherent narrative story. It's fascinating. It's really interesting to the historian of Christianity. But it's not going to tell you anything new about the historical Jesus because they didn't know anything new about the historical Jesus. They were far too far removed from the events that they're talking about. So most of these, uh, whether it's Gospel of Jesus' wife, Gospel of Judas, uh, even Gospel of Thomas... Um, they're written a long time after the, the biographies of Jesus that we do have? They vary in time hugely. So I think one of the earliest ones is the Gospel of Thomas, which is probably as early as the middle of the second century, but it's still some decades later. And I argue that the Gospel of Thomas is, he knows the author of that book. We don't know who it is. He's pretending to be Jesus's twin's brother, incidentally. But the, what, what he's writing about is stuff that he's found out from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's, he's copying stuff out of there and then adding in his own new stuff to try and make it sound like it's the authentic Jesus. What he does is he He'll take some authentic Jesus material as he sees it from the Gospels in the New Testament, and then he'll fit in some new stuff. But when we look at it, we can see that it's, I, I don't think that that is new stuff. It's not going to tell us anything fresh about the historical Jesus at all. So Mark, for thousands of years, uh, we've had these four accounts of Jesus's life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. How can we be confident that, you know, we're reading something that God wants us to see? Well, I think the thing is, when you do academic study of the New Testament, you're often surprised by how close some of these things are to the events that are being described. I mean, it's not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but the fact that Paul, one of our earliest authors in the New Testament, is writing within like 10, 20 years of Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection. So when we look at him, we're, we're, within, we're within shouting distance of, of the events themselves. And he's actually mixing with people who knew Jesus. He's mixing with family members and friends and so on. So, so, we, so we know that we actually have people writing these texts who are grounded in the first century. And the thing is, I would say to anyone, that studying the Bible is, is fun. I mean, and not to be put off and not to be scared of it. There's all sorts of interesting things that you can find out when you do the history and when you look at a bit of context. And really, there's nothing to be afraid about. Well, Mark, thank you for taking the time again to sit down with us. Uh, your insights are very helpful uh, because I'm sure there's going to be something in the news soon about some new thing uh, that's been found that's uh, supposed to change our faith. So I appreciate you uh, taking the time uh, to do that. Pleasure. Um, so, uh, 
I want to do my best Mark Goodacre uh, in, in impersonation. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I'll do my best British accent. Uh-huh. Okay, and so if I if I say uh, hello, I'm Mark Goodacre. <laughs> uh, does that sound British to you? No, <laughs> it probably sounds a little more Aussie than 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 British. How about uh, you do your best, Donnie? Give me a Donnie. Um, <laughs> my name's Donnie. My name's Donnie Williams. <laughs> Not sure. My name's Donnie Williams. I'm I'm the pastor of Life Point Church. <laughs> no, it's, it's very good. It still sounds British to me, but uh, that's good. So again, thanks. Cheers. Appreciate you being here. That's funny. I love him trying to impersonate Donnie. What well, it's fascinating stuff that he talked about, isn't it? Sit, there and listen to him for hours. Mark is actually um, on part of the team uh, on a documentary tonight called Finding Jesus on CNN. Starts tonight. Mark's part of uh, the scholars that's, I guess, you know, corroborated, make sure everything uh, was legit behind that. So check that out on CNN uh, as we look at how God's word can be trusted because it's timeless. God didn't just ensure that these things were written down. He also did everything to make sure that they got delivered to you and I, just the way that he wanted them. And the words in here, they change people. God's word is powerful. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says it this way, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. You see, everything around us is changing. And when stuff is changing, you have to keep your eye on it. Sometimes you can't even trust it. And so when you find something that doesn't change, you should hold on to it. Jesus said, build your life on it in Matthew chapter 7. Yet culture is breathing this lie that this is outdated. It's not relevant. And so we end up going through life, processing our life, making decisions on everything but this. We start to make decisions and we start things with our life being the starting point and not God's word. There was a fascinating uh, documentary on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel. It was about bank robberies. But the the fascinating part was about the vaults and how they build banks. The first thing that they do is put the vault in. Vaults come in all different sizes, but the first thing they do is build and get in place the vault. And then they come around and build everything else around the vault. They do not build the architecture of this beautiful building and then come and try to put in the vault. They go ahead and put the vault. The vault is very, you cannot destroy it. You cannot move it. And so what they do is take the most valuable thing and they put that in first and then build everything else around it. And folks, I think that's what we need to do with the most valuable thing, God's word. Instead of just taking our life and saying, well, I'll fit the Bible in here or I I won't fit it in at all. How about that we start to do as Jesus instructed and build our life on God's word? We want to help you do that. Some of you are already in it. Yes, keep doing it. But if 
like if you're like, where do I start? What do I do? There are some reading plans that we have. Go to the info booth after the service, pick out a, a sheet. It's got a couple reading plans on it. Even if you're like, I don't believe in this Jesus guy. I'm just here. I'm kind of intrigued. Or the person next to me told me, come. Hey, do this for me. Commit for 21 days to read the Bible. There's a plan in there that says exploring Jesus in 21 days. Do that reading plan. God's word can be trusted. It is timeless. Let's start to make this our foundation. It is powerful. It will change you. It will guide you. It will give you a different perspective on life. But most importantly, it will lead you to a savior. And we're going to talk some more about that next week as we continue in the series. And we look at the lie, there are multiple paths to God. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you that your word is timeless, that, you know, heaven and earth will pass away, the flowers will come and go, people will come and go, but we can trust you. Your character, your word doesn't change. And we are so thankful that we can hold dearly onto your word because everything else around us is like shifting sand. And as soon as we grab on it, it moves. Thank you for being timeless and unchanging and being a good God. I just pray for each one here, wherever they're at, with respect to your word, that they would take a step and just begin to read it and start to base their life on that foundation. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen.